large corporations, but to each individual listener. Support KPFA at kpfa.org. Thank you. And this is 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, KPFB in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3.30. Up next, Free Speech Radio News. This is Free Speech Radio News for Friday, July 31st, 2009. From Bogota, Colombia, I'm Manuel Rueda. Coming up in today's program, the Basque separatist group ETA marks its 50th anniversary, as Spain blames it for recent bombing attacks. In California, prison reform advocates urge the state government to cut back on its correctional budget. We need the 21st century education system and not continue to invest in a wasteful prison system that hasn't made us safer and has cost us billions and billions every year. And we examine congressional measures to rein in executive compensation packages. All these stories and more after this news. I'm Andrew Stelzer with today's headlines for Free Speech Radio News. Pakistan's Supreme Court has determined that the emergency rule declared by former President Pervez Musharraf in 2007 was illegal. The decision raises the possibility that Musharraf could be tried in Pakistan for treason. Musharraf is currently living in London and had ignored a summons to appear in court earlier this week. At least 29 people have been killed in Baghdad and more than 130 injured in a series of bombings. A car bomb in the northeast district of Al-Sha'ab exploded outside a mosque that is currently occupied by Iraqi special forces. Agence France Press reports that after the bomb went off, police panicked and began shooting, killing two of the 23 people who died in that incident. Two bombs also were detonated south of Baghdad as worshippers left Friday prayer services. The U.N. reports that civilian deaths in Afghanistan this year have risen 24% from the same period in 2008 and are almost 50% higher than 2007. Asma Namadi reports from Kabul. Bombings by insurgents and airstrikes by international forces have been the biggest contributors to the jump in civilian casualties. The announcement by the United Nations Assistance Mission in Afghanistan said the tactics of the Taliban have altered dramatically, changing from ambush attacks to suicide bombings, roadside explosives, targeted assassinations, and that civilians are dying more as they're the main targets of suicide and roadside bombs. Rory Mungovan, the head of the Asia-Pacific Unit at the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, says that Western forces are also contributing to the high number of casualties because insurgents hide in civilian areas. There seems to be an active policy uh, on the part of the insurgents aimed at drawing a military response to areas where there is a high likelihood of uh, civilians being killed or injured. There have been a total of 1,013 civilian deaths in 2009, and the increase is likely to continue. The Taliban have promised more attacks for the upcoming Afghan elections, and insurgents are facing an increasing American troop force. For Free Speech Radio News, this is Asma Namadi reporting from Kabul, Afghanistan. A week-long strike has ended in South Africa. 150,000 municipal workers were demanding a 15% pay raise, and they've instead agreed to take a 13% raise and return to work. The country's major cities had been largely paralyzed for the past several days without buses, police, or garbage collection. The leader of Nigeria's militant Islamist movement has been killed in controversial circumstances. Sam Alakoye reports from Lagos. 
The police claimed Mohammed Yusuf, leader of the Islamic group Boro Haram, was killed when he engaged police in a shootout. But there are doubts about the police account. A military officer who arrested Yusuf told the BBC he was not carrying arms and was alive at the time he handed him over to the police. Newspaper reports and human rights groups suggest Yusuf was deliberately shot dead after his arrest. The International Human Rights Group, Human Rights Watch, described his death as a case of extrajudicial killing. The police might have deliberately killed Yusuf in retaliation for a series of attacks by his group on police stations, which left many policemen dead. More than 300 people have been killed in northern Nigeria this week following fighting between Islamists and Nigerian security forces. The Islamists who want the introduction of strict Islamic rule in Nigeria are also fighting to eliminate all Western values in the country. Sam Ulukoya, FSRN, Lagos. A new investigation by the Washington Post reveals that Karl Rove had greater involvement in the controversial 2006 firing of federal prosecutors than he previously admitted. The Post reports that numerous emails were sent to Rove, a former advisor to President George W. Bush, regarding the favoring of one candidate for a U.S. attorney post and efforts to get rid of a prosecutor in New Mexico. Rove told the Post he did receive the emails, but says he simply passed them on to the appropriate parties in the Department of Justice and had no agenda in doing so. This week, Rove has been testifying about the firing of the nine U.S. attorneys in front of the House Judiciary Committee, which many say was politically motivated. The Senate has voted not to fund Yucca Mountain, the contentious nuclear waste dump in Nevada, coming one step closer to shutting down the project for good. Sam Greenspan has more. In the $34 billion energy bill passed by the Senate on Wednesday, funding was zeroed out for the proposed nuclear waste storage facility. Stopping the project has been a long-held goal of Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. Reid announced this week that President Obama and Energy Secretary Stephen Chu had also agreed to eliminate federal funding for the facility's license application in 2010. But they are allowing the project's license application to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to proceed, which can take up to four years, worrying some opponents of the project. The Department of Energy had been working to make Yucca Mountain, a site about 90 miles outside of Las Vegas, a repository for spent nuclear fuel rods since 1978. Citizen groups have been working equally long to oppose it. While the Department of Energy claims that Yucca Mountain can safely maintain nuclear waste, some groups, such as Nevada-based Citizen Alert, claim that the waste would greatly increase cancer rates among nearby citizens. President Obama had promised along the campaign trail to close the Yucca Mountain site and has charged the Nuclear Regulatory Commission with finding an alternate location for the waste. Sam Greenspan, FSRN, Washington. About 60 detainees are conducting three-day hunger strikes to protest inhumane treatment at a Louisiana immigration detention center. Their demands for access to legal counsel and medical assistance came a day after the release of a report by the New Orleans Workers Center for Racial Justice, criticizing conditions at the 1,000-bed immigration lockup 180 miles northwest of New Orleans. Some of the allegations made by detainees were that the jail was out of toothpaste and soap for three weeks, an inmate was unable to make phone calls to his family and that men were issued women's nylon underwear. And those are today's headlines. For Free Speech Radio News in Oakland, I'm Andrew Stelzer.
You may have heard that Wall Street financial firms were paying huge bonuses to their top executives while accepting taxpayer-funded bailouts. The exact figures were a matter of speculation until now. A new report by the New York Attorney General shows just how much of that bailout money was going into bankers' pockets. Meanwhile, Congress continues to look for ways to get executive pay under control. Tanya Snyder reports. Despite the Wall Street meltdown, last year was a great year to work for Citigroup or Bank of America or Merrill Lynch. Nine financial firms paid out $32.6 billion in bonuses last year, even as the companies themselves hemorrhaged money. Those banks lost a total of $81 billion in 2008, which they offset with bailout money from U.S. taxpayers. It's maddening to me, too, but at the end of the day, you know, that's just simply the way Wall Street works. Brock Romanek edits the web journal CompensationStandards.com. When every company wants to pay their executive in a top quartile, you have a slippery slope where the pay levels have just skyrocketed over the last 15, 20 years. It wasn't just top executives getting the big bucks. The banks handed out bonuses of at least a million dollars to almost 5,000 employees. Though, of course, those at the top of the food chain got the biggest bite. The administration found out months ago that the bailed-out banks were still awarding big bonuses, and the reaction was furious, but not very fast. President Obama called the bonuses shameful, but the Treasury Department has been slow to craft new rules governing the bonuses. The Federal Reserve is also planning to tackle the issue. Bonuses are just one form of executive compensation. Executives get a laundry list of stock options and incentives that dwarf their actual salaries. Congress voted Friday to rein in those big pay packages, even for those that aren't taking bailout money. Financial Services Committee Chair Barney Frank introduced the legislation. Incentive structures that give people a payoff for risk and no penalty for failed enterprises that has an impact that's why it goes far beyond simply the people who got money under uh, uh, the stabilization act frank's bill would allow the securities and exchange commission to step in and limit incentives for executives to take big financial risks it also includes a say on pay provision that allows shareholders to vote on executive compensation packages which are normally set by the company board of directors all this is a little too much for some Republicans who don't like to see the government telling business what to do, like Rob Bishop of Utah. I don't mind in saying that you know there should be some kind of check and balances on certain areas. The question is, is the government the right one to do that kind of check and balance? Since, but since we're taking over every other thing, every other part of American life, I guess why not? But Democrats say it's the shareholders, not the government, that will have a say, except in cases where the executive's behavior could endanger the whole economy. Mel Watt of North Carolina supported the bill. All it says is not even a substantial interference with the private sector. All it says is if you're a stockholder, you get, a, you get to at least express an opinion um, about uh, executive compensation, not even binding on uh, on the board. Do you oppose express, uh, shareholders expressing an opinion about executive compensation? Tackling fat cat salaries is a popular and even populist way for the Democrats to close out the session before leaving for the long August recess. The top Republican on the Financial Services Committee, Spencer Baucus, acknowledged that it's a tough bill to oppose. It was very difficult for my members to stand up and fight this legislation. If I were simply looking at politics, 
I would not recommend to my members to stand up and fight, you know, executive compensation limits. You know, we each week we have, you know, we pick up the newspaper and we hear where a trader for one of the companies that we, uh, uh, that the federal government, the taxpayers put money into was getting $250 million. That's outrageous. Our constituents are outraged at that. Brock Romanak has even bolder ideas for curbing out-of-control executive pay. He suggests that instead of boards basing pay on what executives make at other companies, there should be internal pay equity. So the top executive can only make a certain multiple of what the company vice presidents make. Or even better, they could base it on the salary of the lowest paid worker. He says companies like DuPont and Whole Foods do it, and it might work for Goldman Sachs as well. Tanya Snyder, FSRN. As states struggle to deal with the recession, many have turned to cutting money from law enforcement and state penitentiary budgets. California has the largest prison population in the U.S., and the budget signed this week cut a billion dollars from the state's prison system. Prison reform advocates say the correctional budget cuts don't go far enough. Africa Jones reports. On Thursday, a coalition of groups proposed the People's Budget Fix. The coalition says California could save $12 billion over five years by reforming the state's prison system. Zachary Norris is the director of Books Not Bars, a campaign of the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights. We are suggesting that California should stop locking up petty drug offenders, stop sending young people to an abusive and wasteful youth prison system that costs $234,000 per year per young person. We need to support and create a sustainable economy that invests in the 21st century education system to lift people out of poverty and not to continue to invest in a wasteful prison system that hasn't made us safer and has cost us billions and billions every year. According to the California Department of Corrections, the state spends $10.5 billion a year on the state's prisons. The budget signed this week by Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger cut $1.2 billion from the prison system while slashing $15 billion from education and social programs for the poor. The kindergarten cop doesn't care about poor kids. Diana Spatz is the executive director of Lifetime, a program that helps train welfare recipients. While he's demanding that mothers on welfare do work activities, he cut the child care and the support services they need to do that and get a job and keep a job. It was short-sighted and just wrong. Supporters of prison reform say instead of cutting social programs, the state should expand alternative local community programs. Such programs stress job skills for parolees. Activists would like to see the division of juvenile justice dismantled and replaced by community programs. Zachary Norris says extending the idea to nonviolent adult offenders would save billions of dollars. States that have actually reduced their incarceration rates have seen greater reductions in crime. States like New York, other states like Texas are doing smart parole reforms. We need to follow the rest of the country and not lag behind the rest of the country. 
The coalition has also called for fully funding drug treatment programs instead of incarceration for drug offenders, restricting the three strikes law to violent offenders, and ending the death penalty. California currently has 683 inmates facing execution. Natasha Minsker, the death penalty policy director at the Northern California ACLU, favors life sentences. Permanent imprisonment takes dangerous people off the street. It provides peace of mind to murder victims' family members because they know the killer will never get out. And it is $125 million a year cheaper than the death penalty. When you factor in the $400 million we have to spend to build a new death row, if the governor acts today to convert all death sentences to permanent imprisonment, he would save us $1 billion over five years. But ideas like alternative community programs and ending the death penalty are tough sales in California. While $1.2 billion from the state's prison system has been cut from the budget, the exact nature of those cuts remains unknown until the legislature reconvenes next month to hammer out the details. What is clear is that Republicans in the state have shown fierce opposition to early release programs. And already this year, funding for drug treatment and alternative community programs has been cut. H.D. Palmer, Deputy Director of the State Department of Finance, says the cuts were hard but necessary. There did, in fact, have to be some pairing back of some of the services that are being provided. That was one area where, with reluctance but out of necessity, had to pull back on, on an earlier investment. That said, we hope that as things improve and the economy improves, we may be able to come back and revisit some of those programs. Palmer says that Governor Schwarzenegger agrees that prison reform is an important element of dealing with the state's budget, and all ideas are on the table. In terms of the broad goal of reducing the costs of operating the state's correctional system, the governor certainly shares that view and is trying to move ahead in that direction. The Coalition for Prison Reform plans to rally for the people's budget fix at the state capitol August 18th when legislators return from break. Africa Jones, Free Speech Radio News. With the proliferation of online media, finding out what happened today is only a click away. But finding media that can provide understanding and perspective about the news is far more rare. Since 2000, Free Speech Radio News has aired on the ground reports from all over the U.S. and the world. And we have connected the dots to show the global connections in the news. Whether we're explaining policy maneuvering in Washington or army maneuvering in Pakistan, FSRN makes the connections that help you be a citizen of the world. For years, you've had some very large companies getting a sweetheart deal, paying no royalties for the resources removed from federal lands. Villages were leveled this afternoon. Call uh, on Israel and other stakeholders yeah, to, 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 to take all possible measures to reopen the crossing points. Your support of FSRN goes a long way to help keep this in-depth news coverage coming. Visit FSRN.org to learn more about how you can help. The Basque separatist group ETA marked its 50th anniversary today as Spain held an official ceremony for two civil guards killed yesterday by a car bomb. ETA has not claimed responsibility, but the Spanish government blames the armed separatists for the attack. While many Basques advocate for greater autonomy from Spain's central government, not all support total independence. To learn more about this conflict, we contacted André Lecour. Professor Lacour researches Basque history and politics at Canada's Concordia University and is the author of Basque Nationalism and the Spanish State. 
Obviously, since the democracy, the logic of Basque nationalism has changed because the mainstream part of the movement has accepted to work within democratic structures and to basically look for, you know, either extensive autonomy or even independence within the context of democratic Spain. But ETA never did accept that, so that's why it's kept the armed struggle going. Now, ETA has been blamed for the deaths of more than 800 people since the start of its campaign for independence. Um, how did this group begin and what made it decide violence was the best way to seek independence from Spain? At the time of the Franco dictatorship, there was a Basque government in exile that led the resistance movement to the, to the, to the dictatorship. But there were some youths that felt that this resistance was too timid and that to fight the dictatorship, uh, you needed violence. And the logic in the dictatorship era was that by using violence, uh, selected violence, so killing people who, were, who embodied the dictatorship, uh, you know, the police, uh, the army, it was really the idea of, 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 of getting the dictatorship to repress indiscriminately the Basque people so that the Basque people would rise and would overthrow the dictatorship in the Basque country and that would lead to independence. That logic, obviously, in the democratic era is no longer, is no longer the same. And so it's harder to, to, to see exactly what, uh, what ETA members and supporters think uh, can be achieved by, through violence. But uh, as I said before, it's, it's a way for them, at the very least, to say that you know, the Basque issue, the Basque problem, the Basque demands are not, uh, are not solved, have not been met, and that, uh, um, and that they need to be. Spain provides certain autonomy to its regions, for example, control over taxation, control over the police forces. And most um, Basque politicians say, even the ones that want more autonomy, say that they don't agree with ETA's methods. Is ETA popular within the Basque population? Well, I mean, it's it's hard to know exactly uh, because at this point, the the party that used to be the voice for uh, the radical wing of the movement and ETA, which is called Batasuna, was outlawed. But up to a few years ago, we could kind of track some form of you know implicit support towards ETA by looking at how much support this particular party garnered, and it was any anywhere between you know, 10 to 15 percent. So it's, it's small, but it's certainly not negligible. Now, obviously, in, in, in this group, there's, there's many different people, right? So, um, but, but if, if ETA did not have some type of social support in the Basque country, it wouldn't, wouldn't exist. Why has it been so hard for the Spanish government to broker a peace deal with ETA or to eliminate this organization? Well, I mean, what they've been trying to do is to crush ETA, and they've claimed for, well, forever that they're about to do this. Every arrest that they make, they claim that, you know, this is a fatal blow, but don't believe that because, uh, you know, that the Spanish governments have been saying that for, for decades. ETA has this capacity to regenerate because there's, to regenerate itself because there's a lot of kind of youth supporters out there. So, you know, realistically, if, if the Spanish government wants to go the more political route on ETA, 
I mean, obviously, it can't make promises about basque autonomy because the ETA, you know, is, is, is a kind of a marginal actor. Basque radical nationalism is kind of a radical, is a marginal force in Spanish and Basque politics, so they can't really negotiate more autonomy with, with an organization like that that uses violence. The one thing that could be negotiated is the release of some ETA prisoners, some form of political amnesty after, after a surrender. But Spanish governments have been loath to, to, to even consider that. That was Professor André Lacour, a specialist on Basque history at Concordia University in Montreal. The political crisis in Honduras continues more than a month after a military-backed coup. The de facto government has issued orders for police to disperse any and all demonstrations that block public roads. Police actions to break up protests have led to dozens of injuries and over a hundred detentions. Tim Russo has more from Tegucigalpa. Mediator Ocarias has sternly urged Honduras' de facto government to accept the return of ousted President Manuel Zelaya in order to ease the country's 32-day-old political conflict. But the de facto government has reiterated its refusal to permit the restitution of the ousted president and has increased pressure on groups calling for Zelaya's return. Roberto Barra, an independent reporter from Chile, was documenting a demonstration on Thursday when police attacked him with batons. They were arresting people and we were taking photos and filming. At that moment, about 20 police came down, took my camera, hit me in the head. I'm bleeding right now. They hit me in the back, my hands and arms. I showed them my identification and they ripped off my credentials. It was a complicated situation at that moment because despite the fact that we were identifying ourselves, they called us communists and said that we were sellouts and there was nothing for us to Police assaulted demonstrators for nearly three hours as protesters attempted to install a roadblock cutting off the major industrial transport route between Tegucigalpa and San Pedro Sula. As helicopters fired tear gas into the crowd of thousands, police chased the crowd nearly eight kilometers from the site of the roadblock into El Mayoreo, a popular market in the capital. Cars, buses, and passerbys were enveloped in the clouds of tear gas. Police beat two other journalists and destroyed their equipment, but Deputy Police Commissioner Javier Leva denied any improper behavior. At no moment did the police attack anyone. We only clear the streets if the people don't want to leave. The police are not going to shoot. We were there and saw that at no time did we attack any journalists. Roger Vallejo, a professor present at the demonstration, was not so lucky. He was shot in the head and remained in a coma in critical condition this morning. Dozens of others sustained injuries, including 70-year-old Carlos H. Reyes, independent presidential candidate whose arm was broken during a police beating. Eyewitnesses said that Reyes was specifically targeted. Police detained over 100 people, including Juan Barona, a union leader and member of the National Front Against the Coup d'Etat. FSRN was able to enter the police holding facility to interview Barona as hundreds gathered outside to demand the release of the detainees. 
La represión de los golpistas hoy se ha recrudecido. Today the repression of the coup has exploded, but the resistance of the Honduran people has gotten stronger, and tomorrow we will be much stronger in the streets, fighting to bring down this coup. The coup leaders will not find any peace, and the resistance is not going to allow them to consolidate their power. They are going to leave the country because of the internal pressure that the Honduran people and all Latin American countries and countries of the world are applying. Ousted President Zelaya was in a meeting with the U.S. ambassador to Honduras at the time of yesterday's crackdown in the streets in Tegucigalpa. Zelaya is requesting the U.S. exert further pressure on the de facto government. First Lady Xiomara Castro met with the injured Thursday night, but the threat of further repression has not dampened the protests. The popular movement hit the streets again this morning to march from the Pedagogical University to the Congress, accompanied by the First Lady. Tim Rousseau, FSRN, Tegucigalpa, Honduras. And that wraps it up for today's edition of Free Speech Radio News. As we close the newscast, we bid farewell to Puck Lowe with heartfelt thanks for her hard work and dedication at the helm of the technical production team. Free Speech Radio News is made possible by Pacifica Radio, affiliate stations, and listener supporters. You can visit online at www.fsrn.org. Today's newscast was produced by Bernard K. Joes and Shannon Young, who's sitting in for Catherine Comp. Tanya Snyder was today's DC editor, and Andrew Stelzer was the headlines editor. Our technical production team at KPFA in Berkeley includes Puck Lowe, Rose Katapchi, and Scott Pham. Administrative staff includes Julie Alexander, Irene Ross, and Nathan Moore. From Bogota, Colombia, I'm Manuel Rueda. Listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is just about 4 p.m. Stay tuned next for Hard Knock Radio. One, two, three, four. Y'all ready for this? <laughs> 